Thank you, uh, Raj. Um, and um, it's really great to have so many experts on the panel uh, and the questions that have been coming in have been really, really excellent. So um, this topic is actually probably what we do most in clinical practice, which is manage people already on ART. And some of these statements about how to, when and how to switch are, are things that are really common sense, but just a reminder that we all have to review the patient's treatment history, the full history, and that sometimes includes getting resistance tests that are very deeply buried in the archives of their multiple electronic medical records. One of the things I teach our ID fellows is how to find old resistance tests from the late 1990s, or early 2000s, when, of course, uh, they, they never knew that they were going to be HIV specialists. Um, we also want to emphasize that after making a switch, you should do a follow-up uh, within a month, if possible, and that's because there's a lot of times when people switch, there's not total understanding about what exactly they should be switching to, even though you think you're explaining it clearly. There's pharmacy errors, there's patients, and I'm, I think we've all been in the situation sometimes when patients end up still taking both regimens. Uh, and then certain very key principles. Um, first, chronic hep B, try to include tenofovir in the new regimen whenever possible. We don't like to switch people from a high-resistance barrier regimen if they have nucleoside resistance to a new regimen that has a non-nuke or a raltegravir, or I should have put elvitegravir here. Um, definitely two-drug regimens, as I alluded to uh, earlier, are, are an increasingly attractive option for switching. Uh, and the important thing is that we ensure that both drugs are active. Um, we have a whole section on each of these organ-specific issues that might prompt a regimen switch. And rather than go through each of these in detail, uh, just say, just say, uh, go ahead and check them out. Um, I think that we're going to cover these in some of the discussion questions that I'm going to come to momentarily. This is uh, something we do less today than we used to, which is switching for virologic failure, since the overwhelming majority of people who have virologic failure are people who have stopped their medication for one reason or another. We, we rarely have people who have virologic failure because they have so much resistance to their regimen. Fortunately, that's not been the case for some time. But we do have some guidance from some second line and other studies. I know from the Dawning study that if people fail an initial two NRTI plus NNRTI-based regimen, that uh, an active pair of nucleosides plus dolutegravir is the best choice. Um, when people fail a a boosted PI or a bictegravir, dolutegravir-based regimen, they usually don't have any resistance at all. So really uh, addressing adherence is going to be the, the primary goal. Um, what about people who fail with uh, first-generation integrase inhibitors? I saw how experienced you all are who are in this, uh, this watching this webinar, and so you clearly probably have at least a few people who have integrase resistance. Just a reminder that if you're going to use an integrase inhibitor and subsequent regimens, twice daily dolutegravir is typically recommended. Uh, and then uh, what about the newest options for people with very few options? Uh, and then those are the really complex multidrug resistant cases where we might consider using either fosdemzivir uh, or ibilizumab. So um, what I'm going to do now is go back to our panel and start with this first leading question. Uh, and let me take a look at who my participants are. This, this is, should all patients on a boosted regimen switch to an unboosted regimen if possible? And because uh, he did such a good job leading us last time, and because he's right across the city in, in Boston, I'm going to ask Dr. Gandhi to take this one on. Um, you know, I think in 
most instances, yes. That is, in someone who does not have drug resistance, um, I think it makes a good sense to to get people off a pharmacologic booster, and I'll tell you why. I mean, over the, the years, as people are getting older with their HIV, the need for concomitant medicines increases. Um, we've had a number of people, for example, who've needed steroid therapy for, for uh, spinal, uh, spinal disease and had injections. And when they were on a booster, a pharmacologic booster, despite our best attempts to to warn our um, colleagues not to, to give them a steroid injection without checking with the HIV um, provider, um, we had in- individuals who would get the steroid injection and then develop either Cushing's disease or um, an Addisonian crisis. And so so I think there's good reasons to try to minimize the likelihood of drug-drug interactions, and one can do that by getting them off of um, pharmacologic boosters. Now, before, we had very good integrase inhibitors that had a very high barrier to resistance, um, bictegravir, dolutegravir. I was a little bit less... Um, comfortable with that in some instances where I thought adherence might be a challenge. But now um, I think uh, in most instances, we know that the unboosted um, second generation integrase inhibitors are, are well tolerated. And they, and I think there's very little reason now to have people on boosters unless they have drug resistance. Of course, if they have drug resistance, then you're, you're, you have to use the, um, the boosted PIs along with them. Um, All right. Uh, I'm going to push you, Dr. Thompson. If you have a patient who's taking uh, Elvitegravir, Cobacistat, TAF-FTC, they love their regimen. There's just totally, completely no problems with it, feel completely fine. Uh, But, you know, periodically they, they, they uh, need to go on a, their uh, steroid inhaler for their COPD and, and asthma. What do you want to do? Well, it's partially what I want to do and partially what the patient wants to do. Um, what I want to do is get them off of their boosted regimen. Um, and, you know, I think with a lot of discussion, most patients are willing to make changes when we actually spend the time with them to discuss what it means, to discuss safety issues, and so on. You know, it, it's unlikely this person's need for steroid uh, is going to change. So I think, uh, you know, trying to work with the patient, it may take more than one visit to do that. But honestly, kind of like working with people on other things where they feel uncomfortable initially. Uh, but if you continue to go back to the subject and drip, drip, drip uh, information, sometimes it begins to take and the patient feels heard about it. Um, so I would do all that I could, I think, to get the patient off of that regimen. I, I do think the in at this date and time, the pharmacologic boosters really cause a lot of problems, and we have a lot of other options. So, so that's my answer. And if the patient says no, 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 then I think you know we really have to try to manage uh, manage both. Okay, thank you. Any other comments from the panel? Yeah, real quickly, the one thing to watch for is somebody who's on an antidepressant. When you pull them off of a booster, their levels and the antidepressant may go down. So just be careful about that because they may, uh, it may trigger a depressive episode. Yeah, good point, Mike. Not just antidepressants, but other medications, diabetes medications and so on. I, I think, you know, there are a lot of things are happening when you take away that booster. So it's essentially looking again at their entire regimen and all the drug interactions. And statins as well. And the preview for, absolutely. Yeah, pre- preview for the polypharmacy 
coming up at the uh, end. That's of the right. Season. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one additional thing I would say also is, is just look at what the insurance or the coverage the patient has. Because again, going to the most, to, you know, the most recent or the most, you know, the one that is in the news all the time regimen may cost a lot to the patient. So there may be economic consequences for making a switch. And it's good to always try to find out what is the copay, what's going to change, what is the insurance covered, et cetera, before you actually make the change. Good, good point. Good point, Mike, about, you know, these, these, these boosters are not just boosting the, uh, the antiviral drugs. They're boosting some of the other drugs too. I think Paul, uh, you mentioned, um, statin drugs. They, they boost, uh, a lot of antidepressants. They, they, it's really quite something. Erectile dysfunction drugs. Patients will sometimes find that they don't work as well after they switch off the booster. Okay, the next question is um, about uh, injectable cabotegravirapivirine. When when it gets approved, and it will get approved eventually, uh, should should I be giving it every four weeks or every eight weeks to my patients? Um, let me uh, go to the West Coast and see uh, whether... Dr. Smith wants to weigh in on this one. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the data look very good being non-inferior after a four-week induction period of cabotegravir uh, and ropevirine. Um, and then the question is also about the um, treatment-naive individuals as well. It also looks great to have viral suppression, 20 weeks of treatment. Um, that was just as good as ditegravir regimens. Um with, you know, 95% um, success rate. Uh, the higher doses at the 700, 600 milligrams of uh, cabotegravir or 900 milligrams of real piperine given it every eight weeks was uh, just as good as well. Um, I think the time will tell what the regulatory agencies, what the FDA says around our um, approval will be. But uh, it looks like it's going to be quite good. Yeah. So anyone have any opinions about whether they would favor the every four weeks, which is what was initially studied in the phase three studies, or the every eight weeks, which was studied in the Atlas 2M study? Before before that, Paul, just to, to point out that we went out a little bit out on a limb this time with these uh, with these guidelines because we uh, we recommended something that's not quite uh, fully FDA approved yet. Uh, we fully expect it will be. Um, so it will be interesting to see when, when that final approval comes it's approved in canada yeah so unusual (laughs) it is (laughs) okay i was just gonna add to uh what davy said i think the data are pretty clear that um, once you go through in the treatment naive studies the lead-in phase of the studies where everyone got three drug therapy and got suppressed and then was were put on an oral lead-in with oral cabotegravir and ropivirine. I think everyone needs to understand that. You did, we didn't just start them on cabotegravir and ropivirine. There's a lead-in phase to get people suppressed and then switch to four or eight weeks with um, good suppression and comparable activity. And I think that's maybe telling us something that it may be similar to the two drug therapy discussion we had earlier that you might want to have people fully suppressed for a period of time before they go on a two drug regimen with cabotegravir and ropivirine. And you might also want to see how they're doing on an every four week regimen before you stretch it out to every eight weeks 
of injections. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty in people's minds about um, difficulties with adherence and covering the tail if people miss doses or what you do if they miss injections. I think that will all um, play out over time once the regimen gets approved and we see how it works in clinical practice. But right now, I think those are difficult questions to anticipate for every patient. I think as as Dr. Smith highlighted, the data clearly show that every four to weeks and every eight weeks, once you get through that induction period, are comparable. And there may be many other considerations that you have to look at rather than just the data from the clinical trial for individual patients. Any any guesses, anyone about what, what we're likely to see in correctional institutions will, you know, if, if if this gets approved and, and will they provide it, uh, would it be a preferred regimen um, in correctional institutions or uh, any, any guesses? For treatment or for prevention? Uh, for treatment. Mm-hmm. I guess. Well, I, I, guess. I mean, I think, I think, I think the issue, there are a couple of issues. Number one, I think, uh, Paul, I think Health Canada approved this monthly, if I recall. Uh, so maybe that the FDA is going to take a cue from that and they're going to go for monthly approval rather than every eight weeks, but we'll see. I mean, I, I guess the issue is, again, going to this whole point that if you're going to start somebody in this regimen, you've got to give them an oral induction. So, you know, you still have to go through that oral induction period before you transition them to the injection. Yeah, most of the people who are going to switch to this are going to have been on suppressive regimen for a long, right. long time. Right. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Let me Let me switch to a different topic. Which is the? Could we just answer one question in the Q and A? There was Q and A. We've got. Uh, There's a question about cold chain issues with the injectables. Does anybody want to comment on that? Sounds like I, I we're not the right people they, to comment. They, 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 <laughs> I thought real pivoting. We're, we're talking about a lot of cold chain things when we talk about COVID vaccines, but yes. that is because they uh, they will mostly require very cold storage, and this is not that situation. Um, so uh, at, these can be stored uh, at a clinical site without. Well, pivoting has to be cold, colder than cabotegravir. It, it uh, does. Yeah, but and but, but they're always going to be given at a clinical site. They're not going to be dispensed to patients. So that's one thing to keep in mind as well. And I just want to point out that this business of having a run-in of oral drug is really for more than just suppression. It's also tolerability because when we're introducing drugs and the person hasn't had them before, uh, once we give the injection, then it's there. So we also want to be sure that they tolerate the drugs. One very interesting study that came out recently, it's not a ton of people, but um, in the FLARE trial where people were suppressed, um, they'd been out, they'd been suppressed for about 96 weeks or so. People were given the option of either doing a oral lead-in, which is conventional, that's that's how we have done it, uh, how the trials did it, or doing a direct-to-inject, where they went straight to the injection. And it wasn't a ton of people, but it was a reasonable number of people. A little over 100 people did get the direct-to-inject. And the suppression rate was fine in both groups. Um, 
But interestingly, the serious adverse events were, were also fine. Uh, they were similar uh, in the direct to inject. So we'll see. I, I don't know what the FDA will do. I'm interested to see right. where they go. But there's some experience coming up with that. So. I do want to mention something that came up in the Q&A, which is very important, and that's about hepatitis B. Uh, as was noted in the introductory slides, people who have chronic hepatitis B are not good candidates for these two-drug regimens because none of them contain tenofovir. And also... Uh, there are already case reports of people who have been on two-drug non-tenofovir-containing regimens who have acquired hepatitis B, acute hepatitis B, because they didn't respond to their hep B vaccine or they never were immunized. So I think it's really incumbent on us if we have people who are hepatitis B non-immune uh, to consider those two-drug options very carefully and, and also to make sure their hepatitis B vaccines uh, are updated. Yeah, the, My next the, question, I'm sorry. So the flip side of that question was, do you need two drugs for hep B, but tenofovir in either form would be sufficient if they've got chronic hep B? I think Correct. That's, uh, Absolutely. So this is a question that comes up all the time. In fact, even yesterday from one of my ID fellows, and it is about, uh, and I think, uh, let's see, who can I pick on? I haven't picked on Dr. Volberdinger SAG yet. Let me, let me talk. I want to start with Dr. I'll, I'll ask both of you to give me your opinion um, because it's a drug that was approved in, I believe, 94, 95, and it's lamivudine, and it has to do with the fact, can we use co-formulated dolotegravir lamivudine in patients with impaired renal function? Because remember, you know, uh, a lot of the people we're going to be switching off of TDF and TAF are older patients with lots of comorbidities, and these are the exact people you want to use it in, but the package insert says no. But what, what can we do in clinical practice? Well, maybe I'll start. Uh, I've got some background noise that just started up, so can you hear me okay? Yep. Good. All right. So the formal recommendation is that when creatinine clearance drops below 50 or so, you're supposed to reduce the dose to every other day, 3TC or thereabouts. And a more modern way of thinking about that is that the the peak levels of 3TC are not terribly toxic. So without a whole lot of data, uh, I would lean towards saying it's okay. If the credit clearance is between 30 and 50 milliliters per minute, I personally would feel okay with the fixed dose and just monitoring kidney function. But uh, I may be off base there, but that would be, it'd be hard to put that in guidelines because there's not much data to support it. But I think just, you know, eyeballing the, the PK curves, I think we'd be okay. But I'm, I'll, I'll let Paul comment. Both Paul comment. Well, you could, so, so you could, uh, and that, that holds, holds true for TAP versus TDF as well. So, so you could continue, um, if you did that, you could continue the, um, that two drug component of the regimen. But if they're on TDF, um, then you probably still want to reduce that component of it, right? Well, you know, there, there, there are now at least enough case series doing this that it seems to be safe. What, what's been your practice uh, in uh, Dr. Del Rio? No, I, I agree with what has been said. We, uh, you know, as long as their creatinine clearance is above 30, I think we can put them on this regimen without any problems. I think, you know, 3TC is fairly non-toxic drug. And I think that that you can, it's okay. You don't need to adjust it that way, even though that's what the package insert says on the drug. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let me just point out, all of you are going against what our own guidelines document says. <laughs> so perhaps you'd like to so, submit a letter to Jim. Right. See so, so, how fast. See how fast things change. I mean, see how fast things change. So, so right. actually, there there has been a study presented since our manuscript on using lamivudine well, with people with uh, GFRs down to thirty, and I heard. Uh, a rumor that the package insert may soon be revised. Uh, okay. Next next question is going to be the elephant in the room, literally and figuratively. <laughs> uh, un, uh, should we switch patients' regimens in our uh, in, in, in cases where uh, our the, the people with HIV, we're caring for them, and they say, I know it's the medicines that are ma- making me gain weight. And if so, what do we switch them to? And you know, I, I go back to uh, Dr. Benson, your 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 comment about the the advice you were giving to someone down in the on the in in, in Southern California. So, you want to take that take us through those situations again? <laughs> I I think my answer is the same as I said before. I don't yeah. know what the right thing to do is. I think if you have the option of switching them to something that maybe has the lower potential for weight gain, that would be the appropriate step. But Davey made the best point, and you made it actually in your own manuscript, um, that paying attention to nutrition and exercise and some of the other modifications of lifestyle and eating behaviors may make more of a difference than whether or not we switch one or two drugs in a regimen. And yes, patients will insist that it's absolutely these drugs. I think you can switch back to something else if you think that the patient will tolerate them. And as you pointed out, the the biggest ones that are consistently associated with weight gain are TAF and the integrase inhibitors. And there are even gradations within those with dolutegravir being associated with the highest levels of weight gain. But that may just be because there are many more people that have used it or been on it for a longer period of time. But, uh, but the switch has to be one that makes sense for the patient that they're going to tolerate and that have the potential for maybe lower rates of weight gain. But you still have to pay attention to nutrition and and diet and exercise and um, change in eating habits and lifestyle changes. We'll have to put a pitch in for our our clinical trial, which is going to take people. Um, this is an ACG study who have weight gain on TAP and integrase based regimens and randomize them to continue that regimen or switch to either uh, tenofovir three TC deravarine or TAF. FTC deravarine. So it's going to look and see the switching to TDF or switching to both TDF and, uh, and deravarine. So. Yeah. And I think that's a very important study. It'll be one of the more scientifically rigorous ways we have to look at whether making a switch makes a difference with the weight gain. Yeah. Any other one, anyone, other clinicians want to weigh in on whether you'd switch someone who's gained an excessive amount of weight on their current regimen? Uh, Yeah, this is Davey. It's not that I, it would or wouldn't. It's that whether, you know, the, the drugs that work are the ones that the person takes. And I think having a real discussion about, you know, if they're convinced, then I have to, 
come up with another regimen and we talk through those sorts of issues. But that frank discussion of taking the medicine or not taking the medicine is a real is a real issue in clinic. Um, if they are if they're convinced that 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 is gaining the causing them to gain weight and they don't want to gain weight, then we have to compromise on these. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I agree completely. And the 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 point is that. Um, the switch studies of going off of those drugs hadn't really changed the weight too much, as we've said. And uh, the second thing is that I've noticed since the integrase inhibitors and TAF have come out that each prescription I write that I gain weight, and that's been an issue for me. So um, that's where those eating habits come into play. That or, you know, the COVID staying at home thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask another very tricky switch question. Uh, I have a whole long list of these, but we want to get, I want to get through them before my time's up. So, uh, this one is, you have someone who is 100% adherent to their regimen. They never miss a dose. The pharmacy confirms all the refills. And frequently when you check the viral load, it comes back between 50 and 200. In fact, more often it comes back between 50 and 200 than it comes back undetectable. And they're really upset about it and, a, what do you do? B, should you switch therapy? C, should we just uh, go back to an older viral load assay and not see yeah, it? Stop, stop checking viral loads. Okay, so, uh, so we we had a we've we've noticed a problem in, in that Paul in that in that uh, with the COVID, I think um, some of the labs have been switched around, so the viral load is going to a different lab and different um, thresholds, and so we're actually seeing you might like a. a Fair number of people with that uh, very low uh, viremia. So we're trying to ignore it, but it's hard. I, I have a number of patients, as I imagine most people do, who are just in that situation. And I got a little bit of comfort, I guess, from a recent study that John Muller's published, um, where he showed that people who have this low-level viremia um, often have evidence that they don't have – the patient doesn't have viral replication, but just that their reservoir, their, their big reservoir is spewing out some – some virus intermittently, he has this idea of what's called a replica clone is, is the term, but that this big reservoir in, in people often with low CD4 counts to begin with is, is spewing out virus, but it's not really replicating. And so the patients that I've had, um, what I do is, of course, make sure they don't not on a drug interacting, you know, drug-drug interaction or that they're, you know, not taking a, a, a methadone cation with their integrase inhibitor or something like that. But then if, if, all is said is done. I can't find any reason. And they're between 50 to 200. I, I, I keep going and I, I reassure them and I try to reassure myself. Too. Yeah. Let me, let me underscore that. And in some ways, the question is kind of a question to us is, do we understand how antiretroviral therapy works and what does it do? And what it does is it prevents de novo replication. But as Raj just said, there doesn't seem to be hardly any evidence that in that smoldering viremia, that you see that there is any de novo replication. Rather, it's virus being spit out from cells that are chronically infected and maybe are reproducing. And uh, so I would pull Herbert Walker Bush here and wouldn't change, wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> you know, it is it is very tricky because one of the primary ways we communicate to our patients about the result we're looking for is to use the word undetectable. And... Uh, this this is not undetectable, but it probably has little clinical significance. And one thing not to do is intensify or switch right. just based solely on this. So we just um, have Paul. to read upon undetectable as less than two hundred. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so well, so Paul, the, the other 
Go ahead. Sorry. I, go ahead. You were going to make another point. I was. I was just going to say that some people are very upset when they get a detectable viral load because they're worried about transmission to their partners. And I think that the data are pretty clear that, you know, less than 200 is uh, still in our undetectable, untransmittable range. Yeah. It's, so it's, there's a very, and kind of on that point, there's a very interesting question um, in our Q&A related to whether there are lessons to be learned from uh COVID about whether this is replication competent virus that's trickling out from these infected cells and what, what do people think about this concept? You know, we're, we're constantly barraged with questions about persistent PCR positivity for COVID after people have recovered from uh, COVID-19. Does that mean they have replication competent virus? Are we seeing a similar con, construct here with what we think about with HIV and these people with smoldering low-level viremia. Is that replication-competent virus? Davy's response suggests that maybe it isn't. As I understand it from, from, from talking to John Mellers, he thinks they're, they are replication-competent, but not in the presence of antiretroviral drugs. So, okay. you know, so that's, that's kind of how he's interpreting it. Uh, very quick question here that I think we should address because it's important. Can I switch to dolutegravir-lamivudine if a person has a history of M184V mutation? And I think we unanimously agree the answer should is no. We no. recommend no. that. Okay. And then the other the other is is there a role for doing unless you're into monotherapy? Yeah. And the other is 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 there a role for doing that special kind of uh, archive resistance testing? If you have a patient with low-level viremia, what, what do you think about that one? To, ch to choose the next regimen. Well, first, I think we've decided that uh, um, uh, just the existence of low-level viremia does not mean that you need to switch. Right. So I think that's the first point. Um, and the second might be that um, it, it's unclear what that is going to tell us at this particular point, unless there is actually a need to switch. But, you know, for most of, of these cases of low-level viremia, uh, you know, we're just seeing little bubbles from the reservoir. Yeah. I, I do think it's important, by the way, that I often recheck viral load for patients because um, it's certainly possible someone is beginning to have virologic failure. Uh, but I think it's really important to reassure the patient um, to enhance their adherence uh, and and you know then then to continue to follow without doing a lot of heroic measures like uh, doing proviral genetic testing. Okay, well that takes us to the end of this session. I had a bunch more questions, but uh, you'll have to invite me back uh, the next time we have one. So <laughs> I'm going to pass it back off to uh, Raj or Mike, who are leading us through through this, or is this a break time.